Hello. Hi, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see you all from up here again. It's been a while, but it felt really good to research and prep a message for you today, and I hope it, I hope it speaks to you. Um, so what we're going to cover today is Revelation 5, verses 1 through 6. So this is a portion of Scripture that is about Jesus as the Lion and the Lamb and the scroll in God's right hand. I'll just start by reading it to you, because it's kind of small. This is my first uh, foray into making my own PowerPoints, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's Revelation 5, 1 through 6. So I'm just kind of going to go verse by verse and break this down and hopefully make a couple applications and talk a little bit about what this means for us. The first thing I want to point out, starting with the first verse, man, that is really small. Um, <laughs> tried to fit too much on there. So the first verse says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So the first thing I want to talk about here is I want to talk about God's right hand. Does that sound like familiar imagery to you? The right hand of God. We, we see that a lot. I want to talk a little bit about what that means. So he's holding the scroll in his right hand. And this represents his perfect authority to execute what is in the scroll. And um, so we know that the right hand and the right arm of God does things. But when we see something portrayed as being at the right hand of God or in God's right hand, it means something about that thing. It, it communicates authority to that thing that is in his right hand or at his right hand. And we see this with Jesus. In Acts 7, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So we can see that the right hand is a place of authority because the Father is bringing everything into subjection to the Son. That's where Jesus ascended to, was the right hand of God. And then I've got some scriptures here that are too small to see, and I'll read them to you. So Mark fourteen sixty two. this is where Jesus says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So we see that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. And then even when he returns in his second coming, he's portrayed as still being at the right hand of God. So this is definitely a place of authority. And then there's just a few more scriptures I wanted to highlight about the character of God's right hand. Um, it represents a lot of things, but I think these are particularly pertinent to what we're going to read today. So the right hand of God means power. It signifies God's power. In Exodus 15, 6, it says... Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. When we talk about God's right hand, we often talk about victory he's going to have over his enemies, which is something that we're going to get into more in this scene in Revelation. 
um, God's right hand often brings deliverance for his people. Psalm 138. Uh, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. And God's right hand also speaks of his mighty works. Isaiah 48, 13. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Isn't that such powerful imagery? That when God calls forth, they, they stand together before him, all that he's created. He laid the foundation of the earth. So this is a position of power. We can know that the scroll is very important, and what is going to proceed from here is going to be a pretty big deal. So we'll move on and talk a little bit about the scroll. So spoiler alert, I'll just tell you what's in the scroll. <laughs> it contains the predetermined plans and judgments of God. Um, this is clearly seen when as the, the seals on the uh, scroll are broken, the judgments are poured out. These are the judgments that we see in Revelation being poured out as the scroll is open, as the seals are successively broken, the judgment is poured out. And these mighty works are released to destroy human rebellion and Satan, to restore God's visible authority on earth, and to restore man to his intended purpose from before the fall. But all of these judgments and things inside of the scroll are going to do. They're going to bring everything back into visible subjection to God. And another character of the scroll is that it's unknown to everyone else. You know, we often talk about nobody knows the date or the time except God himself. Jesus doesn't even know that. And what is inside of the scroll in its entirety, you know, we have the, um, the writing of Revelation, which gives us a lot of symbolism and some clues about things are going to happen. But in its entirety, it's sealed up to no one but God himself. And it's really his glory and his divine right to conceal those things until their full time has come, until it's time for us to see that happen. And also, it's to the benefit of humanity <laughs> that he is so patient. He's not slow, like you would normally consider slowness. Second uh, Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, there's a spe- specified time for the scroll to be open, and until then... God is patient. He's not slow. He, he loves us, and he wishes no one to perish. So there's some seals on this scroll. And the seals, of which there are seven, signify ownership and the full security and backing of the owner. Who's the owner of the scroll? It's God. So these seals on here are a big deal, and that's why we'll see later that there's a certain amount of authority or um, worthiness that is needed to open these scrolls. They guarantee the contents of what is sealed as well. So the seals on these scrolls, they also represent a problem. If you look at this story like, um, like a narrative, like a plot, you know, we're escalating to the point where we get to these, these seals on the scroll. They represent a problem because we have to find who can open the seals. And that takes us on to verse 2. Verse 2 says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. 
So there's a couple interesting things happening here. So it says that the angel, he proclaims with a loud voice. So if you look into that a little bit, it's almost like he's issuing a challenge to everything in all creation. So everything in all creation can hear the challenge of this angel. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And um, no one answers because no one is found worthy. They all fall short. So this question still hangs in the air. Who will carry out the will of God? Who can open the seals on the scroll? And this challenge that this angel issues and all of these beings here and no one is able to answer, it reminded me of another story in the Bible about a challenge that no one wanted to answer, but that everybody heard. Can anybody think of it? Yes. Yes. It reminded me of, obviously there's some differences, but I think there is some good application in us for this comparison. It reminded me of the challenge of Goliath um, to the armies of Israel. I'm just going to read you that briefly here. It's 1 Samuel 17, 8. This is Goliath. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So a challenge has been issued, right? And a bunch of people have heard it and no one can answer. The army's afraid and they're dismayed that no one is found that can answer the giant. So he says it once and everyone's all trembling And then he says it again later. He issues the same challenge. But this time, David is there to hear the challenge. And David is a type of Christ. A lot of the Old Testament characters were types of Christ. They were, in essence, building a job description for the Savior. And they were kind of building this little help-wanted ad that showing us little pieces of what the one to come, the prophet to come, was going to be like. So uh, David is a type of Christ. And Here we see him doing something that is very Christ-like. He's going to answer this challenge. So David says, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So when Saul tries to dissuade David from doing this because he thinks he's crazy, uh, David replies, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So we, we read that this wasn't David's first fight. <laughs> that David had fought enemies just as intimidating in the wilderness when no one was there to watch. That David had cultivated a relationship and a trust with the Lord. And he had defeated enemies far greater while no one was watching. And he was prepared. He was prepared because of those fights in the wilderness. Because he had done that work because he trusted the Lord in that and had seen him as his deliverer, he was prepared to face the giant. And Jesus often faced battles in the wilderness too. I mean, we can remember Jesus' wilderness battles. We can remember when he's alone and he's praying and he's crying blood. We can remember when he's tempted by the enemy. All the times where he, nobody really knows what he's going through. He's, he's facing it. It's just him and the Father. So if you're fighting lions and bears behind closed doors, consider yourself blessed, is what I would say. That's the lesson from that. Those fights, 
and those things that we go through that are unseen, those transformations, those, that metamorphosis that takes place where it feels like you're completely liquefied <laughs> so that you can be made into something else. I mean, those are the fights that prepare you to face things on a, the big stage. Those are the fights that perfect your character so that you can fight even bigger giants and win and be confident in God. So what happens when Goliath sees David? He disdains him because he is a youth and he has the appearance of weakness. He appears to be weak. He's almost insulted. Like, why would you send this guy out against me? What are you saying about me that he would send this pathetic youth out against me? And people also were, they also disdained Jesus' death on the cross. I mean, people even say this today. They're like, really? All-powerful God, it's your plan to send your unique son to die pathetically for the world. That's the plan. And the world cannot see. They can't. All they can see is the weakness of it. And that's all Goliath saw in David. But we know how both of those situations ended. We know the truth of what happened. And this is what happened. It wasn't a great warrior that took down Goliath. And it wasn't the strength of the lion that could open the scrolls. The victors in both of these stories are a shepherd boy and a slain lamb. And there is something so pertinent in that for us about strength and weakness and the strength of God when human strength has run out. See, Jesus, is he's going to do things that only he can do. He's going to fulfill things that only he can fulfill. But he's still our example in that. And we can see our example, too, here in David, in the type of Christ. We're meant to see ourselves in these biblical characters and we're meant to ask ourselves, what is the call that I'm hearing? And what answer can I bring in the power of God to that call? And Colossians 3.10 says, And we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So we're all the time. God is working in us by the power of his spirit. And we're becoming more and more like Jesus. We're looking more like him. We're acting more like him. And as we continue to do that and mature in our callings, we're able to hear these challenges and answer them in the power of God, rather than in the strength of man. This made me think, too, about how perfect and powerful Jesus is. He's so good, and he's so kind. We see him portrayed in this section of Revelation as answering the greatest call that has ever come on the earth. I mean, it's the greatest thing. And he steps right up to the challenge. He meets the challenge and he's able to open the scrolls. Don't you find it incredible that he also answers the call of the human heart? That he can do that, but that he still cares about you and I. And it's just incredible the way that he loves us, the way that he's saved us, and the strength that he has. And it says in here that John wailed that he wailed because no one was found that could open the scroll. And that reminds me so much of just the human soul, the person that's dead in sin. They go about throughout the earth and they look everywhere. It's like their soul calls out for satisfaction. They're looking, what can satisfy me? What can satisfy me? And there's none that can answer that call of the human who's dead in their sin for satisfaction. There's nothing that answers that call unless they find Jesus. He's the only one that can answer the big call for the scroll, and he's the only one that can answer the call of the human who's dead in sin and suffering because they don't know the counsel of God. 
Jesus is the only one that can answer that. And he's so good that he, he does both. <laughs> so verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. <clears throat> so I want to talk here for a moment just about the elders. There is some, there's obviously, we're talking about Revelation. There's some different interpretations for who the elders are. And um, something I found really interesting is that the elders, the 20, there's 24 of them. They may represent God's united people from the Old and the New Testaments. They may represent 12 leaders of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. So God's united people over time. And I find that particularly interesting in this context because it's the elder that says to John, weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. So God's people throughout time have carried the hope of all people. And we still do today as the church. We carry that hope in us. You know, we're the salt, we're the light, we're the city on a hill. And we share that with people. And it's one of these elders that points out Jesus to John as the reason for him to stop weeping. (laughs) He points him out and says, Here's the one who can open the counsels of God. And this elder representing the church, is that's such a message to us that that's what we do today. That's what we should do is we point out to people. We point out to those hungry souls that are looking for something to satisfy them. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's able to satisfy your soul. So looking a little bit at... This terminology, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. This is a reference to Jacob's blessing of his sons in Genesis 49.9, when he was blessing each of his 12 sons um, as the 12 tribes. This is where he said, Judah is a lion's cub, and the lion is a symbol of royalty, and Judah is the lion that King David and Jesus descended from. Jesus' physical descendants came from the line of Judah. And he also, this elder refers to him also as the root of David. So this references Isaiah 11.1, which says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What I find so fascinating about this scripture is that, do you hear the word, I mean, it doesn't reference Jesus as the root in this scripture. It references him as the shoot and the branch that comes from the root of Jesse. It references him as the shoot and the branch that will bear fruit. But Jesus is also the root of David. He's the shoot and the branch in terms of his physical descendants. Um, He physically descended from that in terms of being fully man. But he is the root in terms of being fully God as well. And due to his creative ability, he's also the root. And that paradox is possible because of the incarnation of Jesus. I mean, that's just incredible. The things that he's able to do by the incarnation. He's a branch, and he's also the root. It's it's incredible. So this next thing here says that he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That word conquered, this is what Jesus did. It means exactly what you think it means. When you look it up in a concordance, it basically means to be victorious over one's enemies, to conquer. And I'm finding that sometimes you can look up a word and its definition will not be shocking. 
It will mean essentially what it means in English. But you can look at the tense of a verb in Greek, and it communicates something that it kind of unfolds something for you, which is really cool. So I just want to share a little of that with you. So this particular verb, overcome, in this section of Scripture, the Greek tense is called aorist, and it means more specifically a culminative aorist which views an event or series of events from the standpoint of an accomplished act. Overcome signifies an effort or process, and the aorist tense denotes the attainment of the effort as an accomplished fact. So this emphasizes the complete success of Christ's work and his ministry on earth, particularly the cross. And this brings to mind the full significance of his words on the cross when he said, it is finished. So sometimes it's neat to just dig a little bit deeper. And I love the precision of the biblical writers and the way they communicated these things. They were so precise in communicating the meaning of truth, communicating true meaning, um, that you'll often find these like cool nuggets that they use just the perfect verb tense to communicate Jesus' actions. So we also see this demonstrated in Hebrews 7.27, which says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for him for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So that's where we see the tense of that verb in Scripture <laughs> played out. All right, so now we're on to verse 6, which says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So what's interesting here is that Jesus is referred to as a lion only once in the book of Revelation. Even though the book of Revelation gives us the greatest examples of his lion-like nature, of his victory over sin, Satan, and rebellion on the earth. But Jesus is described as the lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. And um, there's the word lamb is used even more than that. But this particular word lamb is a Greek word called arnion. And then the regular lamb is arnon. So this arnion is used 28 times. And it's a diminutive form of the word lamb. It means little lamb. And it communicates to us the nature of the little lamb in the Jewish sacrifice for Passover. It was a little lamb that they would bring into their home and that they would love and nurture for a time before it was offered up for atonement. And so that's a good layer of communication that tells us about the Father's love for Jesus, about his tenderness toward us. He's the little lamb, even in this <laughs> section of Revelation. So we see that He's described as a little lamb 28 times, and that only once is he described as the lion. And this tells us that Jesus' power, rule, and crown lie in his redemptive work as the lamb of God who dies in our place. So this biggest battle, the biggest battle was won on the cross. It is truly finished, and it's why he is worthy to open the scrolls. It's why he is worthy to one to open the seals. So we see that there's the lamb, and it's standing as though it had been slain. So this word slain 
is another Greek verb. We see that Jesus bears the lasting marks of his obedient suffering and death for us, even in heaven. It reminds me of when Thomas wouldn't believe. And um, Jesus said, put your hand in my side. It's like those wounds, even still here, bear witness to what he did, saying, look, here I am. I was offered up for you. And it's still, we still see it here. And it says that the lamb is standing, even though it appears as if it had been slain. It's, again, just like a situation with Thomas. He's been slain for us, but he's not dead. He's very much alive, standing as though he had been slain. So I think that this really speaks about strength and weakness. Weakness being in quotes. And as I thought about this, weakness is in quotes because it's perceived as weakness. The world sees it as weakness. They cannot see past their own perception enough to see the victory that came. We know that God's weakness is stronger than the strength of man, and God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of man. So Christ was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. The world only sees the weakness and misses the victory one. And this reminds me of John 12, 24 through 26, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But, it, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So obviously there's a lesson for us on this. <laughs> Jesus was the grain of wheat that fell to the earth and died. And he bears much fruit. And this is also a principle for our lives. Unless you fall to the earth and that hard husk encounters the moisture of the soil and opens up, and the shoot comes up and begins to bear fruit, the key point is that that grain falls to the earth and dies. It seems like, I don't know about you, but I kind of experienced this in miniature versions over and over again, <laughs> where we have this experience of death to self, and in that, through the power of God, we bear much fruit. So what does this look like for us? to bear much fruit, to fall to the earth, to die, and bear much fruit. I'll pose this to you. This is a few different things. We do nothing from selfish ambition, but count others as more significant than ourselves in humility. We humble ourselves in obedience to God, even when it feels like it's to the point of death. We share in Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that we may know the power of his resurrection. We pray, not my will, but your will be done. We allow perseverance to finish its work so that we may be mature and complete. We voluntarily take up our crosses daily and we follow Jesus. That's what it sounds like for us to follow his example, to be the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies, and by the power of God produces much fruit. 
this will all look like weakness to people around you even this will all look like weakness but it's the power of God working powerfully within us and if you do this and it feels like death to you don't worry be comforted because it felt like death to him too <laughs> and he went first so we can take comfort in that and just a, a little note on this is that your flesh will fight you when you go to try to be the kernel that falls to the earth and dies. <laughs> you will want to stand up. You will want to assert yourself at every turn. And there may be times where the Lord chooses to act boldly through you in a very lion-like way. I, I can't exclude that or say what he will or won't do at different times. But I think often the battle is for our own hearts. It's for the decision of who are we going to serve. I think that's some of our biggest battles that any of us will face is who are we going to serve? Am I going to serve myself or am I going to serve the Lord? Am I going to do what I want to do or am I going to be the vessel that's open for whatever the Lord chooses to do with me? And uh, so always consider that your battle is with your own heart. And the word says that Jesus came to set the captives free and to bind up the brokenhearted. It's one of the things that he came to do. He came to do that for us. And consider that when you can't surrender, when you can't bring your play, yourself to this place of humility, where you're the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and dies, when you can't get there, consider that it's because you're captive to your own broken heart. And you can be that. You can be captive to your own broken heart. Think about that for a minute and how that might work itself out in somebody's life, to be captive to your own broken heart and how that might cause you to draw back from surrendering to the Lord, to protect yourself, to do all kinds of different things. I mean, that's, that's a reality for a lot of people and it's a process for all of us. It's a journey for all of us to find freedom from that, from our own brokenness. I mean, we're saved in an instant and then we work out our salvation with fear and trembling from then on. And it's a process of surrendering, of dying to self, of picking up our cross daily. So Jesus came. He came to set us free from the captivity to that brokenness. And he is always, always, always faithful. When we surrender to him, he's always faithful. He's always good. And he'll set us free from that. Let's pray. Lord, you are incredible to us. Jesus, you really are. The fact that you can do things so strong, so high, just the mightiest things. The fact that you satisfy the wrath of God. And the fact that you still answer the calls of our hearts, Lord. That you've made us sons and daughters. <laughs> that you work in us and that you work through us powerfully. Even when we are imperfect even when the gifts that we offer you are imperfect. You love us so much, and it's such such a treasure. So we do want to offer ourselves up to you all the time, Lord. Transform our hearts. Make us more like you. We want to love like you love. We want to hear the Father like you hear the Father, Lord. We want to do the things you did in greater. We trust you. And we believe you, and we love you so, so much, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen.